0: You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 002.
1: You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives.
0: We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life.
1: This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world.
2: And now your hosts,
1: Cassie and Rigel.
0: Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Touch of Flavor. On today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Charlie Glickman. I'll get to his official bio in a minute here when we start the episode, but he's a really awesome guy. And today we're going to be discussing consent violations versus consent accidents. This is a really important topic. It's one not a lot of people are willing to talk about. But Charlie wrote a really awesome blog post on this topic a little while ago. And today we're gonna be discussing uh, the difference between a consent violation and a consent accident. We're gonna be talking about how to prevent consent accidents from happening, some steps you can take. We're also going to be talking about when a consent accident does occur, how you can try and, and make recompense and how you can try and move forward from that. Don't miss the speed round at the end of the episode. This is something that you're going to see us doing with all of our guests going forward. It's 10 questions in 60 seconds. It's just a lot of fun. We're going to mention a lot of resources and stuff in this show. Uh, To get a hold of those, you need to go to the show notes. You got to go to our website, atouchofflavor.com forward slash 002 for the episode number. That's atouchofflavor.com forward slash 002. Or you can just go type Charlie Glickman's name in the search box at atouchofflavor.com. All right, let's get started with the interview. Today, we're talking to Charlie Glickman, PhD. Charlie is a sex and relationship coach, a sexuality educator, a sexological body worker, and an internationally acclaimed speaker. He's been working in this field for over 25 years, and some of his areas of focus include sex and shame, sex positivity, queer issues, masculinity and gender, communities of erotic affiliation, and many sexual and relationship practices. Charlie is also the co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure, Erotic Exploration for Men and Their Partners. That is a mouthful. Uh, I'm going to refrain from making the obvious comment. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so there's, there's obviously a ton there. Um, and we were just talking before the recording started actually about how you do work with a ton of like professionals and, uh, you know, like teaching coaches and all that kind of thing. Is there anything that you'd like to fill in from your, you know, kind of your standard bio?
2: Well, let's see. I've never really thought about that. Yes, I guess, which is that uh, for a long time, I was focused more on sex education, the more talk-oriented approach. And the the last few years, I've actually been doing more work around somatic sex education, uh, helping people not just get into their heads, but also into their bodies so that you can Pay more attention to what you're feeling and what you want to ask for, and I have found it to make such a huge difference uh, in how people approach their sex lives.
0: Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of tell people the story of how we wound up talking about this, uh, this topic. So. Uh, uh- a Couple years ago, I wound up in a scene with somebody and during the scene, you know, we went through her limits and everything. It was a play partners of ours. My uh, Cassie was involved as well. And, you know, we went through her limits and pretty much one of the only things that she wanted was, you know, she said, I don't want any marks on my face. I've got to go home to my family. I've got to go home to my kids. And she wanted like this really rough takedowny scene. And so we did the scene and during the scene, I flipped her the wrong way and, you know, she wrapped her head against the floor and wound up with a mark, which was exactly what she didn't want. And so, you know, the scene got done and, you know, I went and I apologized to her. I said, I'm sorry. You know, I know you didn't want that. I didn't mean for that to happen. You know, I feel really bad about it. And, you know, she sat down with her. She's like, you know, kink is a contact sport. And when I go into a scene, I realize that it's a possibility, you know, that something might go wrong. And I know you didn't mean for that to happen, which I thought was a really cool conversation because if I'd been playing with somebody else, it could have gone a completely different way. Um, so out of that whole conversation, I wound up putting together, you know, f- based on some of my conversation with her, a flowchart on... Uh, kind of how to evaluate a scene gone wrong, how I do it personally. And you, later on, on a completely unrelated thing, wrote this really cool blog post on your website about consent violations and consent accidents. And somehow that flowchart wound up making its way into your blog post, and that's kind of how we wound up connecting on this
2: issue. I That's awesome. You're right. Now that you say this, I remember all of that. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to remember how I saw the flowchart in the first place. And I want to say that I ran across it on Tumblr, but I could be wrong about that. It's been a little while.
1: It started to kind of like... Uh, spread. It was, it was interesting because originally Rigel just posted it and it was more of just like a, whoever sees it kind of thing. And it just sort of started spreading everywhere. So
0: yeah, it was like, and it was like a year
2: after I did it. Yeah. So I think Jay Wiseman might've shared and it kind of popped off after that. That might've been it. It's funny how the internet works like that and you just never know. You just never know. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a topic that has come up. Uh, in m- both my work and my personal life, you know, in a lot of different ways, um, because there's there's a way in which, uh, you know, I, I think the BDSM community has done amazing work in changing the language that we have around consent. But I do think that in some ways, it's often presented as a nice, easy, neat. Did you say yes? Did you say no? That's all there is to it. And there's a lot more nuance. And I really liked how the flowchart unpacked some of that nuance.
0: So, what, like, what wound up leading you to write that article? You
2: know, it's it's a few different things. Um, like I said at the beginning of the piece, uh, I was in a discussion group uh, here in Seattle, and somebody just. Uh, use the word consent accidents because they were trying to articulate something about an experience they had where, uh, actually, as I recall, what happened was there was some ambiguity in their communication. They had said something that meant A, and their partner thought it meant B. And so everyone was in good faith thinking that everything was just fine. And then it turned out not to be okay afterwards. Um, and so they were trying to unpack that. And the more I started talking about this topic, the more stories I heard from people who had been on either side or in some cases both sides of that at different times. And I think when it comes to how we move forward, um, you know, on the one hand, I believe that intentions don't matter in the sense that, you know, my intentions don't matter if I do something that hurts you, you know, I still did something that hurt you. My intentions don't take away that hurt. Uh, But when it comes to accountability and taking steps to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, intentions absolutely are relevant. Um, The example that I used in this is, um, you know, if you step on my toes, whether you do it on purpose or accidentally, it still hurts. But if you do it on purpose, you know the the commitment to okay, I'll I'll pay more attention out on the dance floor or in the kitchen or wherever we are, so that it doesn't happen again. Uh, if you did it on purpose. Rather than accidentally, I think there's a deeper level of accountability that needs to happen. So intentions are important when it comes to committing to change, but they're not important when it comes to identifying whether the damage happened in the first place. That's my thoughts on it. Opinions vary, but those that's my thoughts on it.
0: Well, I think it's I think it's a really interesting I think it's a really interesting distinction. Um, you know, and, and the word So the word consent violation has popped up in the scene. Honestly, I think since we've been in the scene, at least in our area, I'm sure it's been around other places longer. Um, But I, I feel like that was a phrase I actually started hearing after I'd been in the scene for a while. And I think the issue with that language to a certain extent is that it's used to kind of blanket a whole lot of things that are really, can really be very different depending on what happened. Um, you know, like, like you said, like something from where they had a discussion and there was an ambiguity and it was essentially kind of a failure in the negotiation of that, you know, f- can fall under a consent violation, but you might also have somebody who like intentionally breaks somebody's safe word as a consent yes. violation. And there, it leaves a lot of, that's why I like the whole phrase of consent that you used for consent accident versus consent violation, because consent violation, there's a whole lot of ambiguity as to what exactly that means. We've lumped a lot of different things under that same umbrella,
2: Yeah. Well, and I think the advantage to looking at it as an umbrella is that it really highlights both how complicated consent and choice are, and it shows that there's a lot of ways that it can manifest. Um, You know, consent violation is a useful term because it isn't always a sexual assault. It isn't always rape. There's lots of consent violations that aren't those things, um, so there's a value to that, but I do agree that it does make it tricky to talk about because it brings in all of this complexity. Um, and one other piece that makes this a tricky conversation is that a lot of people who will sort of who will deliberately cross a boundary will then pretend it was an accident as a way of avoiding responsibility.
1: Yeah, and I think that happens way too often.
2: <laughs> yeah, that absolutely happens. And so one of the criticisms that I've gotten about this blog post, which I think is valid to a certain degree, is that if we start talking about things happening accidentally, sometimes people who are genuinely abusive will use that as a way of creating plausible deniability.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's one of those it's one of those things that I think it's very Difficult to come up with a solution for.
1: I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a double edged sword really. Cause you have to leave some leeway for, you know, life accidents happen. Um, whoopsies happen. Um, you know, you can do the same thing 300 times and then have a slip up. Um, uh, but that being said, you know, that also leaves that o- that door open for those who really are the ones who are knowingly breaking consent to use it as an excuse. Uh, it's kind of hard to kind of uh, eliminate the one without having the other one be a problem, but eliminating both really isn't going to solve the problem either.
2: Well, I agree. And I think the way that you demonstrate that it was an accident is by showing what you're doing to reduce the chances of that happening again in the future. So, you know, not everything is predictable. You might be doing a suspension scene and, you know, your your attachment point in the ceiling, you know, rips out of the ceiling and your, your partner crashes to the floor and hurts themselves, right? That's an accident, But the way that you demonstrate your good faith is by saying, okay, I'm going to get this fixed, and I'm going to have somebody who really knows what they're doing come out and check all the other attachment points and make sure they're safe. And maybe I'll also learn some first aid so that I'm there able to help if something like this ever happens again. As compared to saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, it was an accident, I'm so sorry, and then not doing anything to keep it from happening again, right? In that case, you know, you're not actually demonstrating to me good faith and I have no reason to trust that it was an accident.
0: So I guess, you know, if we're using this language of consent accidents, which again, I think is a fantastic uh, fantastic term to kind of distinguish certain things in so much as we possibly can. Um, what is your definition then of a consent accident versus a consent violation?
2: Well, this is where it gets tricky because it's really about the intention of the person doing it. Uh, And I don't have an easy way to determine what somebody else's intentions are. Uh, But, you know, what's the difference between accidentally, you know, hitting somebody else's car versus going into a road rage and stamping on the gas and smashing into their car.
0: Well, yeah, essentially the intention behind what you're doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's not based on the intensity of the injury. It's not based on, uh, you know, how much damage it caused. It's based on the intention. And this is why the way that you demonstrate what your intention was is in how you clean it up afterwards.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty much, I mean, uh, you know, I think that's pretty much the only way you can demonstrate what your intention was. Yeah.
1: I think also, you know, unfortunately, how you go forward is also a demonstration. And why I, why I say unfortunately is because uh, either in the future, you're going to redo those mistakes that weren't really mistakes or, you know, you're not going to see a pattern of those things. Um, so sometimes you know it's it's a time factor of being able to see in the long run how that person uh, you know conducts themselves over
2: a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is particularly tricky in a culture in which a lot of people who are actual perpetrators, part of how they get away with it for so long uh, is that people don't talk about what happened very, you don't often talk about what happened, so it's hard to see when there's a pattern of behavior there. Um, And uh, you're also dealing with a situation where a lot of people, uh, people of all genders, and particularly cisgender women, are carrying such, well, women of all Genders actually, not just cisgender women, but are carrying so many wounds and traumas around this that it then becomes very difficult to say to somebody, you know, I need you to take this on faith because there's no reason for them to.
0: You're talking about them them taking on faith that it was actually an accident. What happened?
2: If if somebody, yes, yes, if somebody has been hurt several times or is a survivor of sexual assault or has had partners you know, deliberately manipulate and, you know, violate their consent, why should they assume good intentions when a new partner comes along? So that's that's sort of the 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 reality of the situation. So it makes it very difficult to then say to somebody, Hey, this was an accident, I'm really sorry, because you know why would they why would they have any reason to trust that?
0: When you're talking and when you're talking about, you know, we're talking about the intention, you know, being the difference between an accident and a violation, which is true. Um, You know, and I think there's also a factor there that you talked about a little earlier, which is, you know, not related to the attention, not related whether it was an accident, but is this person, well, I think two things, A, are they willing to do what they need to do to uh, kind of help make the person whole again, you know, that they hurt in whatever way, you know, emotionally or physically in this, this, this incident. And the second thing is, you know, are they willing to learn to keep it from happening again? You know, because neither of those things are necessarily related to whether it was an accident, but they do certainly relate to whether this is anybody, (laughs) you know, that you would want to
2: play with in the future. Yeah, exactly. I, so not that I think everybody has to have this perspective, but my personal perspective is that uh, for most things, I'm willing to give people, you know, a uh, a pass on something when it happens for the first time, as long as I see that they are doing their best to get over the learning curve.
1: And I completely agree. I've been in situations where I've, you know, seen in my community where, you know, someone, uh, an example was, uh, you know, they took somebody open with a cane. And, you know, their their whole thing was, is it was a mistake. They didn't mean to do it. Um, and they were offered to go to classes and even a fellow top was like, you know, I'm willing to work with you one-on-one and they never did it. So, um, you know, it sort of makes you wonder, how much you know their intent was to not have that happen when they weren't willing to actually educate themselves in a way to fix the problem later
2: down the line exactly and even if they had no deliberate intention of doing it the f- yeah, the, the fact that they're not working to change their behavior in the future at the very least it it makes them not trustworthy
0: absolutely yeah. i completely <laughs> agree with you on that
2: yeah yeah so um, yeah, so this was why I wrote this piece and and another reason why I wrote this piece is that um, a lot of people also struggle with going into compliance uh, you know compliance is when you go along with something because you think the other person wants it, even though you're not a full one hundred percent yes to it. so compliance could be anything from well, I don't really feel like going out for Chinese food tonight, but you really want to go, so I'm just gonna go along with it.
0: You're talking about on
2: the part of the bottom or the top or both? Well, well, everybody, anybody can go into compliance. Um, the The challenge with compliance is that uh, when we go there, we can feel afterwards, as if our boundaries were crossed, because they were. The difficulty is that it's not the other person who crossed the boundaries, it's us ourselves. So for example, if if you and I are doing a scene, and you're flogging me, and I don't actually like flogging, but I didn't tell you that I didn't like flogging. And you said, okay, I really, I would really like to flog you today, Charlie, is that something you're up for? And I said, oh, okay. Right. And I'm going into compliance. I can come out of that situation feeling violated, but the person who crossed my boundaries was me. And this is a piece that's very tricky to talk about because it's so easy for that to sound victim blaming. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's an unfortunate thing because I've been working with individuals and couples around their sexuality for years and it's, Uh, It's startling how many times I've heard people holding anger and resentment at their partner who didn't even know that they were doing something that wasn't wanted.
1: Yeah. And the, you know, there's definitely that walking that line of, of, you know, victim blaming and um, it becomes a very big concern because we absolutely don't want to shame a victim, um, you know, like that's not something that anybody ever wants to do. Um, but there does have to be a, a, a little bit of personal accountability on things too. Um, one of the aspects of consent is, you know, when you're expressing what your limits are, what your wants are, what your needs are is, you know, you are telling the other person that you are engaging in activities with that. I know myself well enough to be able to tell you what it is that I need, want, or can't do, um, and that I'm going to express if there's a problem. So, when that doesn't happen, it makes it very difficult, um, you know, as far as the other person being able to know, you know, whether or not they are crossing a line for you or not, um, because you're not expressing it. So, it it does get a little tricky there.
0: Yeah. I like to, uh, you know, I like to say you can't retroactively revoke consent. You know, like the thing is you can, you can certainly agree to something and then have a horrible experience later and it can definitely affect you on a deeply emotional level. Um, but at the same time, if you consent to something and you don't unconsent to it, you've still consented to it is the unfortunate, you know, is, is kind of the the unfortunate kick to it. And, you know, there, there are situations where, and I've seen what you're talking about where, you know, there's a scene that's negotiated and the top and the bottom go into it, and mid-scene, the bottom decides that something they negotiated is not working out for them, but they don't inform the top. And then at the end of the scene, they feel, they feel very
2: violated, but the top had yeah. no idea they were doing anything wrong. Yeah. And part of where compliance comes from—this uh, is something else that I learned from Betty Martin—everybody— um, in the world has learned that there are times when you don't get to say no to touch. Uh, And that's because when we are infants and toddlers and very young children, there are things that people need to do to us that we're not capable of understanding and that we don't want for, for our own good. And then, of course, many of us, I would say most of us, learn additional lessons in this you know the difference between go give grandma a kiss versus would you like to give grandma a kiss and sexual assault and groping and harassment and those all have a different weight based on gender but even somebody who's never had anything like that happen at a core level we still all know that there are times when we don't get to say no to touch and 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 this is something that takes practice to overcome uh and so you know nobody is born knowing how to stop a scene halfway through and say hey wait a minute something's different you know nobody has learned or you know nobody automatically knows how to tell a partner uh you know oh, that actually is kind of uncomfortable can we change it up a bit you know these are skills that we have to be taught and very few of us ever learn them
1: yeah. And I think this goes a lot for women of all yeah. types um, because we are taught like from a very young age, you know, you are supposed to be proper. You're supposed to be giving, you're supposed to be caring and nurturing, and you're supposed to serve. You know, women are taught to be, you know, the nurturers and the ones who serve and and care. So um, when it comes time for us to say no, it, can, it really can be a very difficult thing for us to do.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it can be, uh difficult for different reasons for a lot of men, because a lot of men, so not to take away from what you just said, because that's absolutely true. And one of the ways that this shows up for folks socialized as boys and men is we get taught, you're always supposed to want to have sex. So if my partner comes to me and says, hey, do you want to make out? Do you want to have sex tonight? I might say yes, because saying no challenges my self image as a man.
0: When I think on top of of the gender things that you guys are talking about, there's also, speaking as somebody who plays quite a bit from the bottom, as well as the top, um, you know, I think there's also some things that surround that when you're talking about um, BDSM, you know, for example uh, if you're in a power exchange relationship with somebody, I mean, you know, you may very well have the right to end that, but you may not want to, you may not want to disappoint the person. You may not even be in a power exchange situation. You may not want to disappoint the top. And then especially, you know, if you're in a a very public space and you've got people watching and you've got a crowd, maybe it was like, you know, some of these scenes kind of turn into attractions of their own kind. You know, you can be under a lot of pressure not to end something just for the sake of embarrassment.
2: Yeah. Performance anxiety. You know, or, or having anxiety about the performance, like who's watching you, what's the judgment there, That that's more what I meant by that. It, yeah, and, and so you're right, Cassie, I mean, there's absolutely ways that this impacts, uh, you know, folks socialized as girls and women differently, there's gendered trends for sure, and uh, compliance is not lim- it compliance itself is not limited to any gender, the way that it comes out is deeply informed by gender.
0: So I want to talk a bit about um, uh, moving past consent accidents, kind of resolving them. But Before we do that, um, I'd like to ask you, is there any advice that you have on how to uh, overcome that tendency towards compliance? Because I feel like that's kind of a separate issue. That's more on the the receiving end or the bottom end, not all the time, I think, but for the most part in the situation we're talking about. Um, and is there any advice that you have kind of to, uh, kind of try and overcome that tendency that we all have kind of socially towards compliance in these kinds of situations?
2: Yeah. Yeah, One thing I can really recommend, and this is, uh, it's a free resource, um, one of my teachers, Betty Martin, if you go to her website, bettymartin.org slash videos, uh, she's got a, a series of videos from one of her workshops. Uh, the workshop is called The Wheel of Consent. It helps because these are somatic practices that can help you unpack what your relationship to compliance and consent is. Um, You know, another piece of it, uh, something that I learned through cuddle parties, is if you're not a hell yes, the answer is no. And so what I mean by that is if I come up to you and say, you know, hey, Rigel, do you want to go get a beer? Right? If your answer isn't hell yes, make it a no. Right? Uh, And and I recognize that in real life, we sometimes go along with things that we're not a hell yes to. But like practice for a week saying no to things that you're not a hell yes to. And I'm not suggesting you do this at work because your boss is not going to be happy about that one. There's a whole conversation to be had about power and money. Um, But when you're having sex or doing a scene with someone, if they say to you... Uh, do you like spanking? Do you like bondage? Do you like play piercing? Right? If your answer is anything other than "Hell yes," then make your answer no and and see what that does to your experience. I think we'll we'll link to that.
0: It's funny, every time you say the Wheel of Consent, Cassie's over here nodding her head. Yes. It's actually something I'm not familiar with, but
2: she apparently likes it a lot.
1: Yeah, I've, I've actually referred to it quite often in a couple of my classes. Um, oh, awesome. Have
2: you done the three-minute game? Yes. Yeah, so you get it. It's a, it's a beautifully simple experience that is profound.
1: Yeah, the first oh. time I came in contact with it was actually through Reed. Um, oh, of course it was. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I, I think that it's just a really, really good um bit of information and insight into your own self while
2: going through it. So is this the game where you No, oh, it's not that one. You're else. getting the other one confused. I'm getting confused. <laughs> so 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 those are two pieces. And and one third piece, um, there's a practice that I learned through sexological body work that I think also applies to kink, which is called pleasure mapping. Uh, pleasure mapping is a way of finding out how to describe what you want so that you can tell your partner. Uh, because if you don't know how to describe it, all you can do is say, do that thing you did that time. So imagine that you are doing a pleasure mapping spanking scene. Well, so you could start by spanking different parts of your partner's butt. And they could be in different positions and flat on the bed and standing bent over and elbows and knees. Um, you could try different toys. You could try different hand shapes, all of these different variables. And on a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is, oh, my God, don't stop. I think I love you. And 1 is, this is boring. Let's put on Netflix. Um, Any time you hit a 7 or above – on the scale tell your partner tell your top or your partner and then have them describe what they're doing so that you understand that oh i really like being spanked on my butt cheek but not on my thighs or i like being spanked first soft and light but when it gets further on i like being punched in the butt Or, I like being spanked if I'm bent over, but I don't like it over the knee. Uh, And once you've done the mapping, then you've got the language to negotiate better. Then you can say to a prospective partner, yeah, I need to start off slow with spanking, but once I get going, I really like it, but not over the knee, so maybe I can bend over the hood of your car instead.
0: Okay. Do you have uh, like a good resource on pleasure mapping that we could attach to these show notes for people to take a look at?
2: There isn't, unfortunately. I uh, should write something. You should. I should write something we will about. totally link uh, it in these notes. I'll, I'll have to add that to my cue. But one last thing I want to say about pleasure mapping is that the goal of that experience is not to have an orgasm, although it might happen. The goal of that experience is to get the data for next time. Uh, so, you know, as one of my teachers says, an experiment is only a failure if you don't learn anything from it. So if you go into a pleasure mapping scene and have a huge orgasm, but you don't know how to tell your partner what it is that led to that orgasm, that's not actually a successful scene. You've had a good time, but you haven't learned anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll throw one more thing into this mix of exercises that you can potentially do. So we teach a negotiation and consent class um, that's more aimed towards BDSM. But part of it, this is another thing I think you got from Reed, yeah, is a part of the class is, you know, turning to your partner, have them ask you to do something and practice telling them no. Like you know what's what's the phrasing for it?
1: What's the phrasing? Well, it's um, you know, asking the person them telling you no, and then saying thank you for taking care of yourself um, once they tell you no. Um, It's actually an exercise in both directions. It's an exercise in knowing how to take rejection by looking at it as that person is taking care of themselves. It's not a rejection that I'm receiving. It's really just them taking care of themselves. Um, but aside for that, you're working on the ability to say no. Um, so a lot of times in that class, one of the things I'll say is even if the person asks you something that you really, really want right now, just say no, it's just for, it's just for practice. Um, cause occasionally somebody will say something and they'll be like, yes, I want to do that. And I'm like, no, you're failing the exercise right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you aren't learning anything. <laughs> you're not learning anything. Yes. Exactly. Um, so. Yeah. And I, and I've done that exercise too, and it's hugely profound Um, because, uh, yeah, it takes practice to hear somebody say no and not take it personally.
0: So good exercises. We will link to all these in the show notes. Whenever you do the pleasure mapping, we'll link to that too. Awesome. Um, so I want to talk about, so a lot of your, we we've talked a bit, or I should say a bit, but quite at length about, you know, what a consent accident is and, you know, um, talking about compliance, which I think is a great Great topic, um, but a significant portion of your your blog post that you wrote actually talks about um, moving forward from consent accidents, like how to resolve, how to move forward. Because the thing is, you know, we're all going to wind up in some situation eventually. Unfortunately, where this happens, if we do stuff long enough, something that you did not want to happen is going to happen. And knowing how to handle it and how to move on, I think, is really important. So I'd be very interested to hear your points of view on what the best way is when you have one of these incidents to resolve that in the way that's best for everybody and to move forward from
2: there. Oh, that's so really what you're talking about is how do we apologize? I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And the you know, apologies are are complicated. There's a lot more steps to them than people realize. I, and unfortunately uh, many of us learned either ineffective models of apologizing, or we never actually learned how to do it in a way that is genuine. Um, there's a, a book by the, so the Gary Chapman, the guy who wrote the book, uh, The Five Love Languages. Um, he also wrote a book called The Five Languages of Apology. He seems to have gone on a five language kick. Um, but there's, different steps to an apology uh you know there's giving someone your attention there's acknowledging the hurt or the harm that we cause there's actually saying the words i'm sorry or i apologize which a lot of people don't do um there's all of and there's there's all of these different steps uh there's asking what the person needs in terms of amends. Um, so in, in the post that I wrote where I include your uh, flowchart, that's part of what I talk about is, uh, you know, thank you for telling me, right? That's the first step. Thanks for letting me know. Um, I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry that uh, I didn't hear what you were saying, or I'm sorry that uh, I misunderstood, or that you didn't feel comfortable telling me. Um, I see that it hurt you, whether or not it was intentional. I see that it hurt you and I apologize for doing it. Um, And then, you know, what could I have done differently? These are all things that are challenging because they, they bump up against our desire to protect ourselves from shame. Uh, They bump up against our urge to have a positive self image but these are the kinds of steps that you absolutely have to have in order to repair the connection. And it's the repair that's important. Um, you know, In attachment parenting, they talk about how a lot of people think that they have to be perfect parents. And the problem with that is that then you're not teaching your kids how to deal with imperfect people. Uh, And so the trick is to aim for good enough and then know how to repair things when good enough isn't enough.
0: I see that you also have in here as a part of the apology the question of what could I have done differently?
2: Yeah. Well, and I think that's valuable when it's a genuine accident. Um, You know, what could I have done differently differently? Uh, I could have checked to make sure that this position was comfortable for you. Um, I could have had the music softer so that I could hear you when you were making a request. Um, You know, I could have asked you uh, what names you like to be called during sex rather than just picking something and discovering that it was super triggering. (laughs) Right, not that that's ever happened to me, or, anything like that. Um, but, but so, but I, I think there's a lot of value in asking what could I have done differently as a way of showing good faith, right? Because that's the that's part of accountability. You know, how can I keep this from happening again? What could I have done differently?
0: Well, I think something else too that goes kind of beyond the apology itself. Um, is, you know, if there's anything that you need to do, maybe outside of words to try and make that right. Um, I was thinking about a friend of ours who I will not name on here, but we had a friend who was a really, really big piercer and he was really, really good at what he did. Um, and he had a long-term partner of his, somebody he'd pierced a bunch of times before.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they had played many times, had many good times. Um, and they did a, a hook suspension, um, a hook pull. And, uh, at the time they did not know that she had a skin condition and I don't remember what it's called, but it causes you to scar very easily. Um, and, uh, they did the hook suspension and, um, you know, she had a ball doing it, but, uh, afterwards it actually caused some very significant damage, um, which was very costly and she didn't have the insurance for it. So even though it wasn't something that he did intentionally, even though it was something that they both agreed on, both had very, you know, a a ton of knowledge on that particular subject matter with doing it together. um, He actually stood up and paid the medical bill for it um, because he realized that that was in, in one way, a way that he could make that particular thing up to her. Um, And also he's just an awesome guy and, it was nice of him to do.
2: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And so what you're saying there is that that's what he felt he needed to do to be in integrity with his values. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it would be an interesting question of like an alternate universe where the same situation happened, but maybe he didn't have the money to pay for that. Like, like what do you do in those situations? Um, it's, it's not an easy thing to answer. And I think this is what makes this such a challenging conversation because everybody has opinions.
0: I, I completely agree with you. I think it's, you know, it goes back to what you said, which is what you need to feel that you're an in integrity, um, whatever that may be. And I guess with whatever resources you have, and I mean, you know, this is kind of an extreme example where she accused, you know, large medical bills and all kinds of stuff, but, you know, but whatever you feel that needs to be done to help kind of write whatever your
2: yeah. part in that and, was. And, you know, maybe in the alternate universe where he didn't have the money, he would start up a GoFundMe page and explain the situation and, like, would take the lead on helping raise money for that.
1: Or even be the ride to the doctors, you know, what, whatever it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can do it.
0: So I think, I think, you know, kind of talking, you know, from what we've talked about so far, you know, essentially – The apology, obviously, being a very important part of it, and the, uh, you know, doing what you feel that you need to to help make that situation right. And then also, as we've talked about, taking steps to prevent that from happening again in another situation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like they say, you know, experience, what was it? Wisdom comes from experience, and experience comes from making mistakes. So how are you going to learn from this for the future?
0: So I'm going to kind of veer to something that I think is on this topic, but that you didn't really talk about so much in your blog post. And I'd be curious as to any tips you have to try and prevent these consent accidents from happening in the first place. Obviously that's not always possible. Sometimes life just happens, but I'd be curious as to any tips that you might have to help
2: prevent those. I think, well, yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, and I want to acknowledge that sometimes these can be really difficult when you're turned on. <laughs> right? It's why it's valuable to negotiate with a new or a prospective partner before things get too hot and heavy, because once the arousal app gets switched on, nothing else is running. Um, but one of them is uh, making it as easy as possible for the other person to tell you what they need. Um, And so when, if I'm doing a scene with somebody and they say, I need more lube, I need to change positions, can you hand me my vibrator, right? Saying, thank you for telling me. I'm really glad that you told me, I'm really glad that you gave me the information I need to do a great scene with you. The more you practice that, and the easier you make it for somebody to do, uh, the fewer challenges you're going to come up against. Um, I think a second piece to that relates to aftercare. Uh, even if you're doing a, a pickup scene with somebody at a play party, I think there's still room in there to say, hey, you know, does it work for you to have a quick check-in conversation or a text message tomorrow, I just want to make sure you're doing okay. right? Make it easy for people to let you know and then it becomes easier for them to tell you when they're not in their hell yes. Um, and then the the third thing I want to put in that is acknowledging that new partners, this is much more difficult with because you don't know them as well um, and so, I think it's a great idea to back off with a new partner until you get to know a little bit about each other before you go deeper. Um, that's that's my own personal perspective. I certainly know people, and I've I've certainly gone fairly deep with you know with pickup play. But uh, you know, when I have done that, it's been after we've had some conversation and gotten to gotten a sense of each other. So th- those are some of the things I can think of. Um, I guess the the final piece, I'm thinking about that guy who didn't take a lesson in caning. Um, you know, these are skills. And no matter how skilled and experienced you are, there's always more to learn. And you can always use another refresher course. You know, so even if you think you're amazing at caning or bondage or piercing, take an intro workshop again and and keep an eye open for some of those basic things that maybe you don't bother doing, but that you could start including in your fun.
0: And I, I agree with all of those. And I think, you know, as far as the aftercare part is really important, we, you know, when we teach negotiation, we teach that as part of the negotiation. Like you have to know somebody's aftercare requirements. They're different for everybody. And well, we usually recommend is general rule obviously different things work for different people but whenever we do a a heavy scene with somebody who we're not in regular like contact with like it's not somebody we see every day we usually check in you know immediately afterwards and then a day and then a week to see where they're at you know especially if it's a particularly heavy scene
1: and if it's a very 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 heavy scene I even reach back out like a couple weeks later just to make sure everything's still still all good because um, yeah. sometimes those kind of scenes especially when you're doing something that's like, um, you know, a consensual non-consent type of scene, they can bring up a lot of emotions and a lot of things that you did not know that you were going to have at the time that you were doing things. And you might not experience those things for a extended period of time. Um, so aftercare is really important. I also want to say that I totally agree with the, like going back and doing classes. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm a huge flogger snob. Like I am one of those people (laughs) that, well, I, I walk into a dungeon space and I see people flogging and I have to walk back out of that particular space because I cannot see stand to see how bad they are flogging somebody. <laughs> um, I, I know I am. I think everybody should be a snob about something and, and flogging is mine. Uh, but that being said, I still, you know, when I'm at conferences or camp events or things like that, I'll catch a flogging class um, just to see if there's something new I can learn or a different technique. Um, Because I think that, you know, the best tops, the best teachers, the best people are the ones who are always willing to learn more. Um, And the reason why I added people at the end is because it's not just tops. You know, as a bottom, there's many things that you can learn as well um, as far as, you know, how to make things go down in a much more pleasant and positive way.
2: Yeah. And people forget that. They think that the top is the only one who's got... Input about that, but it really is everybody. Uh, and one last thing, just to, because you mentioned having a really big scene. Um, a, a term that I got from uh, from some of my teachers, Celeste and Danielle, uh, might be relevant here. Uh, they refer to it as a shame over. It's like a hangover, but emotional. Um, and it's similar to top drop or con drop, where you've had this big expansion maybe a big catharsis but a a big expansion of your energy and then your body is going to contract a little bit afterwards just to come back to you know its balance point but that natural contraction can feel tender it can it's a shame over um you might be emotionally tender you might be a little more emotionally reactive you might feel a little introverted um shame overs you know they're a little like hangovers like i said they're a little bit like uh, being sore the day after you work out at the gym or go on a really long hike um and so navigating a shame over means recognizing hey i'm having these feelings that it might not be because anybody did anything wrong um and so for me, part of aftercare is just checking in, you know, not just how is your body feeling today, but also how is your heart feeling today? You know, how are you doing after this big scene we did yesterday? And is there anything that I can do to uh, to make things feel a little bit less tender? So um, there's a, another post on my blog called Dealing with the Over" that is all about that because it, it happens. We will put that in the show notes as well. We've got quite a list of resources. Yeah. Hey, can, awesome. can you tell I geek out about this a lot? Hey, it's fantastic. Oh, this is this is a topic that you
1: know we discuss all the time. It's very very important, and um, you know, and and talking about sort of your your shame over sort of thing, um, I find it important also to you know in the beginning of a scene or before a scene when you're negotiating, asking that person if there's anything that you know makes them feel good makes them feel good about themselves that they might want to hear later um you know being be, whether it's you know you're a good girl or you know you're pretty um because some of the things that we do are you know very intense they can be anything from degradation to um you know i mean just ripping someone apart you know like so the the bringing them back you know whether it's you know a day later the same day or a week later, reminding them, you know, you are a good person, you are beautiful. Um, those sort of things can be very helpful too, because it can kind of give you that flip-flop when you're going back through that of feeling shameful about what you enjoyed or what you did. Um, because, you know, that, this, that internal struggle of trying to figure out whether or not it was okay, even though it really was just because of, you know, what societal
2: views of it is. Yeah, or whatever. I mean, you can have Uh, an amazing time going on that hike and feel sore the next day and not be able to get up off the couch and still not regret having gone on the hike.
0: Okay. So we've, we've talked about moving forward from consent accidents. We've talked about preventing them. Um, You know, if, if something does happen as it's bound to, you know, we've talked about, how, uh, you know, how, how the different parties can kind of approach that, but what are like some support or resources you think are available for people when this does happen?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I'm a big fan of the different, there's a lot of different versions of it, but things like nonviolent communication or powerful non-defensive communication, uh, you know, basically learning how to talk about charged topics in a way that is safe. Um, And that might be something you can learn from a book. That might be a workshop. That might be working with a coach or a therapist. Um, It depends on your your needs and your learning style. Um, Learning how to tolerate the discomfort. and, And what I mean by that is if you come to me and say, hey, you know, we did this thing and I'm not feeling okay with that. For me, that might trigger anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, worry, you know, all kinds of things, self-judgment. So learning how to tolerate that, and and in particular, shame resilience. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's book, I Thought It Was Just Me. Uh, one of her earlier books. I think it's got a little bit more useful information in there. Um, But learning the tools so that uh, if you come to me and you tell me that something doesn't feel right, I can keep myself from going down the shame spiral. Um, So that's a really big one. And I think the, the last piece is if you're finding yourself going around in circles and the conversation just doesn't seem to be getting anywhere, that's often because you found some interlocking triggers where you trigger me and then I trigger you and we go back and forth and back and forth. Um, that's a really good time to find a coach or a therapist uh, because you can't always see it from the inside sometimes you need an outside reflection to be able to figure out what to do um and the earlier the earlier you do that the less difficult it's going to be it it makes my job much easier if people come to me earlier in the process than when they're already on the verge of getting divorced
1: i completely agree i have that happen a lot as as a coach <laughs> It's like I, I wish you guys would have come to me a little sooner. Um, Makes life so much the, easier. Yeah, because at that point, it's you know you're you're trying to go through. You know, it, it's it's already been catastrophic. You know, you're you're cl- trying to clean up the disaster, not prevent it. At that point, so
0: it's like, can I do a can I do a call tomorrow? It's like, uh, well, I don't know if my relationship's going to last till tomorrow if I don't get on a call
2: tonight.
1: <laughs> yeah, and if it's at that point, um, probably the call tomorrow is not really going to fix it. Um, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, unfortunately. And and a good way to tell if you need some support is if you're feeling resentment. Um, res- I think of resentment as crystallized anger. So if if I feel anger, and I tell you, and we talk about it, and we move on, we're done, we're complete. But if it doesn't get completed, it crystallizes into resentment. And resentment... Destroys relationships. It shuts down your sex drive. Because, you know, why would you want, to, you know, how can you be open and vulnerable with someone who you're resenting? Um, so if you're finding that you're holding resentment uh, towards another person, that's a really good signal that it's a good time to get some outside support.
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, just to, you know, kind of touch on, You know, as far as resources, I just want to put this out there. If it comes to being something that is outside of just the scope of your relationship and it's, you know, getting to a point that it is a dangerous situation, something like that, um, you know, I would recommend as a resource going to the NCSF um, if you get into a situation where it's not, it's no longer a consent accident, but a consent, like a violation that's with intent. Um, And, you know, we'll put that in the notes too.
0: So... Part of what I found, I found kind of interesting as far as my mindset, um, as far as kink stuff, especially when I was talking about earlier. So I I do bottom quite a bit. And when I was talking earlier about that situation that happened uh, with the bottom that, you know, I wound up hitting her head when she didn't want a mark on her head, um, was this whole conversation that she had as far as, BDSM being a contact sport. And I thought that was a really, really interesting point of view on it. Um, you know, because for example, myself, I've done a decent amount of like mixed martial arts and those kinds of things, you know? And the thing is, I never, I never went into anything wanting to be hurt. You know, I never went into anything with the intention to be hurt. And hopefully nobody who went in with me to do anything ever, ever went in with the intention to hurt me. But at the same time, I picked up quite a few injuries during that time. And, you know, I realized that even though I wasn't going out there with the intention of being hurt, that whenever I stepped into the ring, you know, so to speak, that that was a possibility. And I feel like as a bottom, and I'm speaking about myself personally, that's something I kind of bring to my scenes to a certain extent. Um, You know, I go into a scene realizing that sometimes stuff happens even if, if the, you know, the top doesn't intend it or if I don't intend it. And I think that's, you know, for me where that whole aspect of intention becomes very important.
1: And I agree. Um, You know, in the BDSM community, we always battle back and forth about, you know, saying safe and consensual versus rack. And I'm, I'm more of a sane, safe and consensual gal myself, but that's because of when I came into the scene. Um, But just for the sake of rack for right now, Um, that's what that comes down to really, um, is being aware that, you know, when we play with fire, cause some of us do, or we play with water or whatever, we might get drowned. We might get burnt. Um, you know, that, that time that we got flogged might end up bruising more than another time that we did it. Um, so it's, it's really about, you know, understanding that there are risks at what we do.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, so for me, um, like I said, that's, that's how I tend to approach stuff. And I think that it's kind of a realistic way, but at the same time, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those issues that I feel is realistic, but at the same time, it's one of those things we have to be very careful about the attitude because it can border on kind of making the victims feel bad for what happened. And I'd I'd be really curious to get your point of view on that.
2: Yeah. Well, part of why I like the idea of RAC is because, you know, nothing is 100% safe. It's why sex educators talk about safer sex rather than safe sex. And, you know, even, and for we're looking at safety on a larger scale, you know, even sex where you're not actually touching the other person, like video, like, like webcam sex, it can still have an emotional impact, right? So there's safety on a lot of levels there. So safer sex means what do we do to maximize our odds of success here, um, and I, I like the idea of thinking of it as a contact sport because you know it's interesting. You know, Rajal I know you didn't go into any of those bouts wanting to get hurt but I know some folks who actually like going in and like being able to show off their bruises the next day. (laughs) Well, bruises, bruises are different than, you know, a knee injury you carry around for the next 10 years. And and so, and so part of this is also coming up with a distinction between hurt and harm. Right. Absolutely. Right. Because it's funny to say, yeah, in BDSM, we don't want to hurt people. Well, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people disagreeing with that statement. Um, and then the question is what does harm mean? You know for one person, harm might mean any kind of marks showing on the skin. Somebody else definition of harm might be marks showing on the skin where people are gonna see it. So let's talk about, oh, I'm going to the beach the next day okay, well, then it's going to show under my bathing suit, so no marks, versus the middle of January, and you're all bundled up, and you could have marks everywhere but on your face and hands, and no one would know. Um, So this question of hurt versus harm and and risk-aware, I think this is all really relevant because we have this idea that if hurt or harm happens, that it has to be somebody else's fault. And, and I think in a lot of ways what we're talking about here is a question of due diligence. Like to go back to that example of the attachment point in the ceiling, maybe I didn't know that my building was put together by some folks who didn't know what they were doing and that support beam wasn't mounted correctly. You know, I can do all of my due diligence and still somebody could get hurt. Uh, so, yeah, so I think due diligence is the place where that shows up for me more than anything else. And, and, you know, when there is hurt or harm, it's natural to want to find somebody to blame. Uh, and sometimes there just isn't. Sometimes there absolutely is, but sometimes there isn't. And that is, that just has to be part of the puzzle.
1: All right. So we're going to do our speed round now. I'm going to ask Charlie some questions about himself and uh, he's going to try to answer them really quickly. Uh, This should only take a couple of seconds. So, all right.
2: Are you ready, Charlie? Yes, let's do it.
1: All right. So what is something you're not very good at?
2: Cooking. I'm I'm good at following, I'm good at following a recipe. I'm not good at improvisational cooking.
1: Okay. So best piece of relationship advice you've ever received?
2: learn to apologize, and learn to accept apologies.
1: What are the three things you couldn't live without?
2: Uh, my partner, my laptop, and chocolate.
1: What turns you on?
2: How long do we have for this? <laughs> Just name your top one. Uh, I'm going to go with Prostate Play because I wrote the book, so I kind of have to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> A good book you would recommend to our listeners?
2: Uh, About sex or about anything? About anything. Ooh. um, Ooh. There's so many. You're asking tough questions. Okay, I'm a big fan of John Scalzi's book, Old Man's War. If you're a science fiction fan, go check it out. He's awesome.
1: What's your biggest fear?
2: Being asked what my biggest fear is on a podcast? No. um, my my, My biggest fear is... Probably, like, making a big mistake and not being given room to rectify it.
1: Okay. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It doesn't have to be sexual, but it could be.
2: Well, it is. Uh, For my birthday about seven or eight years ago, I told my partner that I wanted to be at the center of a gangbang, and she invited a whole bunch of our friends over, and they all took turns, and it was awesome. It was for my birthday, so I. But it, but it was a scary, scary thing to do.
1: So scary! Happy birthday!
2: Yeah, it was awesome. Just what I like.
1: All right. Who is your movie star crush?
2: Ooh. Um, these days, I'm gonna. I, I don't know the actor's name. It's actually from a TV show. The guy who plays Lita Rodriguez on Sense Eight. I just have a crush on him, but I don't know who anything about him.
1: Very hot. Yeah. Okay. So what's something you're working on right now that you'd want our listeners to know about?
2: Ooh, so I am uh, just finishing getting trained in a modality called trauma release exercises because uh, although talking about these topics can be really helpful, I'm discovering ways to work with the body around trauma and sexuality. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to bring that out into the world. Okay.
0: So that's it for the speed round. Charlie, if uh, our listeners want to look, they want to find you, they want to read some of your awesome blog posts, or they want to look into coaching with you, where can they find you at?
2: Uh, Well, I'm really easy to track down because you can look for me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, FetLife, anywhere else as Charlie Glickman. Uh, And uh, my website is charlieglickman.com. And for coaching, Uh, And my blog about coaching-related topics is makesexeasy.com. And uh, I would love to hear from anybody who's interested in working with me. I offer a free 30-minute Get Acquainted call so we can make sure I'm the right fit for you. So don't hesitate to get in touch.
0: All right. Thank you for joining us today, Charlie. It's been great talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I told you Charlie was awesome. We're going to have him out on the show again soon. There were just a ton of resources mentioned in this episode, everything from uh, Charlie's original post to the Wheel of Consent videos to a bunch of books. So to find those, go to the show notes. It's atouchoflavor.com forward slash 002, or you can just go to the website and type Charlie's name in the search box. Everything's in there. All right. Again, thanks for joining us and we'll see you the next time
1: thanks for listening to the touch of flavor podcast where we're building relationships outside of the box got a question about kink power exchange or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years this is the place to ask it submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-T-O-F-1